1: This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. BellaCatering.com.au is where you can find them. They're one of Sydney's best catering companies. And since the absolute gargantuan shit show of 2020 has descended upon us like one of those spaceships in Independence Day and COVID-19 has changed our lives, these guys have pivoted from being one of the best face-to-face catering companies in all of Sydney to home delivery and creating just amazing stuff that you can order, you can take home, you can chuck in a freezer um and it's why cook if you're gonna have people over i know that it's tough to even like think of having people over you got to worry about hand sanitizers and temperature checks and does this person have a mask and really is that relative of mine that clean do you want to invite them maybe you want to change it don't think about anything else except for that invite list order from bella catering if you're in the greater Sydney area they can help you they're a great family business they're part of our little family here at one eight minute productions thank you for listening now onto the show
2: I am my brother's keeper. And when you say the name, Jacob Blake, make sure you say father, make sure you say cousin, Mm -hmm. make sure you say son, make sure you say uncle, but most importantly, make sure you say human. Human life. Let it marinate in your mouth, in your minds. Mm -hmm. A human life, just like every single one of y'all and everywhere. world. we're human. His life matters. So many people have reached out to me, telling me they're sorry that this happened to my family. Well, don't be sorry, because this has been happening to my family for a long time. Longer than I can account for. It happened to Emmett Till. Mm. Emmett Till is my family. Mm. Philando, Mike Brown, Sandra, this has been happening to my family and I've shared tears for every single one of these people that it's happened to. Mm. This is nothing new. I'm not sad. I'm not sorry. I'm angry Mm. and I'm tired. Mm. I haven't cried one time. I stopped crying years ago. Mm. I am numb. Mm. I have been watching police murder people that look like me for years Mm. I'm also a black history minor Mm. so not only have I been watching it in the 30 years that I've been on this planet but I've been watching it for years before we were even alive I'm not sad I don't want your pity I want change
1: ladies and gentlemen welcome to all the president's minutes i'm your host blake howard it's the 86th minute of alan J. pakula and robert redford's 1976 masterpiece that we've arrived to we are really on the downhill slope of this movie now we have gotten some big breaks and we're watching these two wonderful guys robert redford's bob woodward and carl bernstein bounce off one another some ideas about how to secure some information from 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 a a bookkeeper who is done talking to them and today's a treat because there's a person here who i'm going to read i I don't usually read um i don't usually read out like a bio as such but the terrific critic himself scout to has a, a, a a i guess like a The state of film criticism, I don't know what you want to call it, but he basically has this sort of um, uh, anthology of film criticism um, that talks about different critics. This person is one of the most hilarious and essential Twitter followers in my life, and I just relish hearing his voice on Twitter all the time coming over the top. He's a contributor to Premier Magazine, Movie Mezzanine, some folks would know of, The Dissolve. R.I.P., The Atlantic, IndieWire, Yahoo! Movies. Most importantly, writes for the side of the great one, RogerEbert.com. And Scout DeFoya writes, He's willing to not go to bat for merely films and artists he admires, but for the idea of a rational, critical conversation, an endangered species at the time of Scouts writing this in 2014, making him a most vital voice. It's my distinct pleasure... To welcome a filmmaker and a film critic, Danny Bowes, to All the President's Minutes. Mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show.
3: Ah, thank you for having me. And ah, that intro, I feel like such an, an August personage now. And, uh,. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
1: well look I'm so glad you could make it to be a part of the show I'm excited to talk to you Um, it it was one of those things that we 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 finally linked up on Twitter and I was like when are you coming on the show and you're like when you invite me Blake and I was like that's a very Danny uh response I was very I was like well you're (laughs) invited for god's sake you've had a standing invite you never needed to RSVP um tell me about you know I know you're I know your writing influences. I know you've got such an eclectic set of tastes, whether it's literally from the sort of formal classicists of film, you know, film history gone to the past, or like Bollywood movies that don't get any attention in the United States. What what's your relationship with New Hollywood and Alan J. Pakula, and particularly all the President's Minutes?
3: Well, I mean. Uh, the New Hollywood occupies a, a, a very outsized place in American cinephilia because it was, you know, one of the alternate terms for it is the American New Wave. Yes. And every country's New Wave obviously is like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, man, that was when the shit was going on, man. You know, it's like, and so like I, I think um, there there was never like a particularly localized moment when I came to the New Hollywood. Like, it probably started from, like, watching The Godfather when I was, like, eight years old or whenever it was I first saw The Godfather. I mean, maybe I was, like, 10 or something. But, like, you know, and then it was just, like, you know, gradually as it became, like, more of a cinephile as a teen, like, the movies that I was absorbing were, you know, like, Martin Scorsese's films and, uh, you know, the the, the classic um Uh, You know, like Robert Altman, and Brian De Palma, and, uh, you know, Coppola, and just, it's just like the laundry list of American directors, it's like the, like, you can list major figures for like an hour, and then there's the, you know, obscurities, who are like, great directors in their own right, and would be like all-time greats, you know, no matter how you cut it, and... You know, one and and I think it was in my 20s, somewhere around there. I was younger than I am now, but, like, definitely years into becoming a serious cinephile. I found, you know, Alan Pakula's Paranoia Trilogy, uh, you know, uh, starting with Clute and then the Parallax View and then All the President's Men. And it's just those three films are such an unbelievable run. And that, like, so few... So unbelievable. Uh, yeah, I mean, it ranks with, like, the great three-film runs in all of cinema all over the world. And and it's, like... The thing that's interesting about it to me is that it's sort of, like... You know, like, how... Uh, like, I, I, I think of him almost, like, you know, in terms of, like, a historical figure, like, he's almost like somebody like Michael Curtiz. You yeah. know, like, who you don't... You know, like, when you're talking about, it's like, okay, who are the greatest directors of all time? You start going, it's like, all right, well, you know, Ford, Hawks, Wells, you know, blah, 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 Bunuel, Lang, you know. And then, you know, maybe you don't necessarily think of Curtis with those guys. He made a handful of some of the most perfect and sublime films that we've ever seen. And you look at them, and it's like, this guy's fucking great, you know? <laughs> you know, And it's like, and I think of Pakula as somebody like that, you're just like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, why do not you tell me about this? This is the shit right here. You know, and especially with, I mean... Just the synergy between Pakula and Gordon Willis. I mean, like, those two guys are just, like, all on the same page. It's like, all right, Gordon, I want you to make this look cool. All right, Alan, I'm going to. You know, it's like, and it's like, and then the whole goddamn film just it, looked in you're, just like, it's you're just like, oh, this is so good.
0: <laughs>
1: when, when, you, when you think of Gordon Willis, like, I don't know, like, as a cinephile, you think of him like, he must be like a wizard. Like, he talks, like, in your head, he talks like Gandalf the Grey. Like, he's just, like, imparting all this, like, poetic wisdom. But he's really a pragmatic, workman-like guy. And much like Pakula, just this really pragmatic, engaging, um, very attentive, normal dude. And so I love I love your uh, po- positing how they interact. It's probably exactly correct. Like, it's not even anything to laugh about. It's like, Gordon, do your thing. Sure, Alan. That's it. Like, they, right, they just know, like, what's the light in here? Yeah, we've got a lamp. All right, let's go with that. Like, they just do their thing. And, um, yeah, really a, a, a phenomenal pairing that only works. They, they seem to work perfectly. It's one of those things that um, – uh, like great director and cinematographer pairings um, uh, are exciting to me just as a cinephile. And I know you too, but I, I, and I think when you were talking about Michael Curtiz there, I just thought, I always think those guys who don't get the credit guys or gals that don't necessarily get the credit or aren't in the first five filmmakers that you make are always more interesting. They just always seem to be more interesting because on the fringes they've the, they, they continue to make these great films and then you get to go back and revisit them and like, no, that this is actually great. Like it's actually in the context of, you know, that entire arc of work or that, that entire era, like their films are influential. And then you later find out that the big, you know, all time great filmmakers were deeply influenced by them or watched their films and admired them and, and 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 changed their work because of it. That's what's really exciting to me. Okay.
3: Oh, I just wanted to circle back to what you were saying about Gordon Willis a second ago about um is being like a practically minded, you know, like working man kind of guy. Because when you contrast the relationship that he had with Pakula, you know, and our, you know, headcanon that they've just got along perfectly harmoniously with no bullshit. But, you know, which I think is really, you know, like fairly close to reality. The relationship that uh, Gordon Willis had would say like, you know, Francis Coppola or Woody Allen, who were both sort of like, you know, two variations on New York fancy lads kind of, you know, and how, like, you know, Coppola could just sit there and, like, you know, uh, fucking filibuster for three hours about, like, you know, Joseph Conrad or something like that. Um, and Willis is sitting there going, it's like, yeah, well, how the fuck do you want me to like the shots that the actor's faces or, you know, it's like, whatever. You know, it's like, um, and, and, and Coppola, like, once complained about Gordon Willis, he's like, He's like, I'm here, I'm an artist, and, you know, Gordy's, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, like, sitting here, looking at all these sissy actors, you know, it's like, I think he, you know, like, used an even more, you know, like, homophobic term to refer to Gordon Willis's attitude towards creative artists, but it's like... It, you know, it, it's like and I gotta say, as much as you know, like an intellectual and a fancy lad as I am, it's like I do sympathize with Willis in that dynamic of just sort of like, we got a fucking job to do, man. We got a fucking movie to make. You know, like we can have like our literature paper about, you know, like all these, you know, grand works of art, you know. Um
1: But but, but yeah, today, some actor's face needs to be lit, Francis, for you to capture it on film, on celluloid. They need to be lit. And they need to not move off my marks once I set them, you know, or or I need to light the room differently so that you can shoot them with the fluidity that they need to move around. Like it's one of those things um, that in the research of my show and a couple of great combos I've had in, in, in this, it's like, people are like, Gordon Willis, you wouldn't, it's not the guy that you would imagine. The perhaps um, if you've kind of got a romantic vision of what he might be like, he's a very workman guy, like very craft orientated, gr- very supportive. And yeah, like at the end of the day, I'm just going to light it. I'm going to light it and make sure it's well lit and exactly to the tone that you want, and then you're going to shoot it. And so, yeah, it's really funny that they had such a great kinship because, I mean, I I think it says a lot about them.
3: Right, because Pakula himself was like a very kind of nuts and bolts guy. Like, I think he started, I think he's one of the guys who started in the 50s doing live TV, like Sidney Lumet and Arthur Penn and that generation of guys who, you know, and when you cut your teeth in that sort of process where it's like, all right, you know, like, we don't have any time. We got to get it and we got to get it right. Let's do it. You just, you end up developing a kind of, you know, attitude towards creation that is while still retaining any, you know, like, you know, artistic ambitions that you have, ultimately the execution has to be just like you can't dither you got to just go yeah and
1: there's i think that's no the, that's a, there's no art well, in it there's no art in it it's like function like with that live tv it's like get the job done like the setups are easy the the choreography of the cameras is more important like we've got a standard set it's like get the job done there's not you're not going to wax lyrical to a a live tv director about the art that you want to portray in a in, in, in oh, the yeah of a shot it's just like it's very workmanlike so those guys tend to then have a i don't know a greater appreciation you talk about lumet too i think he he and pakula share a lot in terms of just um the awareness of what they're shooting in conjunction with how it's going to be edited and the 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 tempo that they can set in any of their pictures because they kind of don't seem to have a wasted you know not a wasted frame in the in the movies that they really really sort of hit out of the park oh, especially yeah.
3: Because they've got the conception of the thing and the execution of the thing um, working in harmony, that it's not like, you know, because all too many directors, I'm sure, you know, can pull examples of this. But, you know, watch Lander people when we're here to praise all presidents, Uh, but, you know, like other kinds of directors who are just walking around, I have a vision and you (laughs) peons are tasked with bringing my vision to life. And, you know, it's like the whole crew sitting there going, man fuck this, you know, it's like, it's like, this guy sucks, you know, and those sets tend to just be awful, and it's like, everybody thinks, it's like, oh man, I would have loved to have been on set when that was happening, it's like, no, Uh, you want to be on set with a bunch of like, practically minded, clock punching fucking guys, making like, a creature feature, you know, or it's like, you do three takes of everything, you have lunch at 12, and you know, it's like, go home in like, four weeks, and you have a good ass movie, Instead of, like, going to the Philippine jungle for two years where everybody's <laughs> dying of a heart attack and shit, you know, it's like, and having to have, like, audiences at the presidential palace with fucking, you know, like, Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, you know, being like, well, if we like the film, we won't kill
1: you, you know, and it's like. And, and, it, when, and my favorite, one of my favorite things, and when you send John Milius as an envoy to be the voice of reason. Then you're you, not fucked up somewhere, yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is a garbage fire, like just, just it's over, yeah, it's over. Yeah,
3: but no, yeah, I when you want, when you want, when you want people to agree on things, send Walter Subcheck, yeah. Right,
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> he can get you a toe, he he can get you a toe, and that's, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I totally agree. I think that, and that's what Lumet does. He makes the, you know, Lumet makes these really like philosophically dense morality plays, but he makes them with real, um, efficiency because of the way that he, you know, stringently rehearses at the beginning. And then when they get on set, they know everyone knows what they're doing. Like they are just, everyone's like, we know what scene's going to look like. We know what it's going to do. This is going to happen. And, and that, you know, I haven't had a chance to see it yet. And I've been reading articles about it and, and talking to a few people who've seen it. And there's apparently a really great, um, Uh, Alan J. Pacula retrospective documentary about his career and a lot of the people that work with him and and has an incredible lineup of his collaborators past all, all through his life. Talking about him, just talking about what he was because obviously he's one of these sort of fringe figures if you like in 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 the in the hollywood history and they consistently just say like his attentiveness his attention to detail and knowing what he wants and just really like being able to almost hypnotically focus in on his performers in their scenes and really give them what they need to execute on the day Mm -hmm. it's just what they always talk about so it's just like yeah you, you you don't you don't want the i think we all kind of it's it's in our gut we wish that we could that those people were actually rational human beings, but those that I- example of a crazy director is like they never seem like they're going to be fun to work with.
3: No, and because and, and that's what the appeal of like you know say you know your Kubel and your Lamets you know have is that like you know they take film seriously as an art form. Yes. They go. They get the job done while they're making the thing, and then when it's done. You're watching this, you know, like a fully realized film that like pretty much like, you know, that like a a broad variety of people can appreciate for a number of different reasons or for all those reasons put together. You know, it's because and it's also with the, you know, the background that guys like that came from, you know, like growing up, like um, I think Pacul is a a New Yorker as well. uh, But I know Lamette was. But, like, coming from working-class background, working-class urban backgrounds, where they're growing up around, like, a variety of different kinds of people, um, it's, you know, not the way it is now, where all too many filmmakers are breaking in. It's, like, kids who are rich enough to be able to hone their filmmaking chops by the time they're 22. So, you know, like, the cinema of recent years is, a lot of times, the cinema of rich kids. Um, But in their generation, it was, like, you know, they knew... What they, they were tapped into what, you know, the, the the average person, you know, like, wanted to see in a movie, so they would make a movie that was accessible to everybody. So you could watch one of these films and not feel like there was all this, like, you know, symbolism and pretension flying over your head. You would understand exactly what, you know, you know, somebody like, you know, Pakula was saying about, you know, like, institutions or somebody, you know, like, you know... He, he, you know what i'm saying i'm kind of running out of steam here with, the, yeah, with no, the workbook. No. but 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 you know like we're basically you know it's like like we we share a respect for this kind of you know almost like you know working class filmmaking kind of
1: you know yeah no i i couldn't agree yeah. more. i think i think there's like a sort of no fuss element you know there, there's magicism of the hearts of darkness that is there that you know you, you know out of the clutches of two years of madness you can pull a masterpiece and and far too far too a few times that is actually the case more often than not it's you know too much chaos reeks of a production that is bad and then the movie's bad and then the creative process is bad for everyone and no one gets any anything out of it but uh yeah no that's one thing i've really learned to appreciate throughout this whole process is just him being a really practical working you know, obs- obsessive, but not to the point that it hinders the work that he's doing. Um, which is, you know, it only complements it. We're in a banger of a scene here, Danny. I've I've asked you to be part of um a right. uh, 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 a line now that has come up. I didn't realize it was one of the lines of the movies, but I don't want a cookie is uh, appearing to be one of the lines of the movie that people have sought after, and you get the minute with that moment. Would it together uh, conferring over the manic notes taken by Bernstein during the bookkeeper scene, which uh, uh, played by the Oscar-nominated Jane Alexander, um, we have this great exchange. They are going back and forth, and this is kind of the bridging scenes, sort of a, a, a dialogue um, a, a, a dialogue action scene, the coder at the end that you're getting and then he- us heading back to the bookkeeper. So let's watch this now, the 86th minute of this great, movie um which for anyone uh queuing it up on their hbo max or on their blu-ray it's one hour 25 minutes on the dial up to one hour 26 um and uh danny and i are going to watch it together now you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it
3: and what if she denies it we're screwed so but if she doesn't we know we've got it we know p is porter try it
2: Hi. They'll see you. Not if you let us in, they won't. And I'm Bob Woodward.
4: They'll see your car.
2: We parked around the corner.
4: You have answers for everything, don't you?
2: If we did, we wouldn't be here.
4: You wrote
2: what I told you. Oh, no, no, no not, not your name. No one knows it was you. Could you tell us who got the money and how much?
0: You mean, like, what did you do with... 25 grand lady. What little jokes they're making down at finance these days.
2: If people are to be convinced that Stans and Sloan are innocent, then
4: our reporting must be precise and you can help us.
1: Who is who is P Danny? Who is P? Yeah, who was uh, was it Paulson? He no. is. P is Porter. P is Porter. No, P is Porter. P is Porter. We bury, we bury it. We bury it. We bury it so they can't see it. Yes. Such a, a really nice contrast to those scenes. The coda. You get the beginning line, which is great. We're screwed um, if she doesn't if she doesn't buy it. There's been a little negotiation about how they're going to approach their their next interrogation of their source, and then we get a great scene to see the. Uh, a, a much a, a remaining calm burn scene and a much more assertive Bob Woodward here asking the questions and allowing Bernstein to sit silently and play good cop in the background
3: yeah that that reversal is interesting because for most of the film you know Bernstein's the one who's just like you know humping everybody's leg to be you know <laughs> first of all to be allowed to be part of the story and then just like the Like, when he's down in Florida trying to get in to see Ned Beatty, he's just, like, you know, sitting around all day, and he's just, like, you know, that eight cups of coffee Dustin Hoffman energy. He's just, like, well, you know, it's, like, I'm not leaving here, And the whole time, you know, it's, like, Redford's the one who gets to be all chill, and it's, like, you know, the guy who says to him, it's, like, like, well, I'm a Republican. And, you know, like, and and Redford goes, oh, oh, I am, too. You know, it's, like, (laughs) and and Hoffman gives him that triple take. You know, it's all, all that shit. Yeah, and then this one, it's, you know, Woodward's the one who's, like, yeah, let's go. Yeah, let's do the thing. And Bernstein's almost like oh wow i can take i can take a couple minutes off you know <laughs>
2: um
3: the thing that, that that i that fascinated me about the the lead into this scene and the way that you know uh, that it plays out as as a result is how many times in the film they have to do these things where they have to like trick people into you know they, they, it's almost like it, it's almost like a courtroom drama where like they have to you know it's like you know like manipulate language to get the other person into a position where they can say the thing without you know risking literally risking their lives and just that that dance that they're constantly doing in the movie just all through uh text is is really is really fascinating and it's you know you think of most films when people talk about it's like oh something is like you know oh it's it's really talky they're usually saying that it's boring and in this the role of dialogue and the role of language is is a large part of what creates the suspense because of all that's at stake and 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 that language is the only tool that these guys who are you know like writers and as writers they have kind of shady people skills sometimes and so it's like the relentlessness kind of like makes people uncomfortable and then they have to make sure that they don't make the person too uncomfortable to just shut down. And in this scene, the look that she gives them when they roll up, she's like, God damn it. What like, Why the fuck are you assholes back here? God damn, get the fuck out of here. You know? And it's like an all conveyed in like. A fucking like eyebrow raising a sigh too it's like that it's very it, an efficiency of gesture but the subtext just like screams out just like if I never see this Carl Bernstein motherfucker in my life again oh die happy and yet there he is with his blonde friend showing up and it's like great <laughs> it's like,
1: and I love it like she's like oh you printed what I told you and he's like well we didn't mention you as a source and mm-hmm. and I love the inference, though, of their, like, uh, you didn't print me as a source, but you may as well have, like, you know, like, but she's yeah, way too yeah. polite. She's literally talking to them over an iced tea. So the politeness level is significantly enhanced. But yeah, the mm-hmm. subtext of the scene is like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk to this guy. I don't, I, this is a pain in my ass. And now I'm just relaxing. I've finally been like free, feel free and comfortable to be out of my house because at least maybe mm-hmm. some of the pressure is off me it's like two different people from the one that we saw, like hold up in the house, not wanting to leave, but she's got this little sanctuary moment and and then they just bluster in there as well. And, and, and bother her, you know, Oh, they won't see us if you won't let us in. And like you said, there's a great, like, um, there's like a targeted manipulation in every one of those exchanges that is reminiscent of a courtroom drama, because you're like, you want to basically put people into a corner where they have to tell you what they know, even though it might, damage their reputation, yeah. or something like that, or they may, may, may sort of um, incriminate themselves slightly or, 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 or bear themselves to, to some kind of additional scrutiny, if you like.
3: And, and there's that ethical element of it too, that they have to factor into all of these interactions with these people where they're trying to get to go on the record, because if they were purely ruthlessly relentless in pursuit of this information, They wouldn't have to, uh, you know, like, care about the personal safety of the people who they're talking to. Um, And so they have to do this. They have to balance, you know, like, if I print this person's name in the newspaper, they could literally be killed. Yes. You know, and they have to keep that in mind while they're relentlessly pursuing the information. And it's like they for the most part pull it off but that's another source of the 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 great suspense in this movie i mean the suspense in this movie is unreal like every single moment even quiet things where nothing's happening it's like a shot with like one person walking up the street you're like on the edge of your seat your teeth are like clenched and you're just like hearts palpitating you're like "Ah, ah." And, and it's just because there is so much at stake and it's like there's the i'm gonna fuck up the quote but like later on when like you know ben bradley tells him it's like uh you know it's like you know nothing's riding on this except the first amendment the whole future of the history and it's like (laughs) oh yeah right this is kind of um yeah you
1: know Uh, and and Uh, i think we're coming to we've come to that crest of there's a whole stack of time in this movie where they're not quite sure how big this thing is and in the preceding scenes to this minute we've We've now just gone, oh no, it's not only is it way bigger and way more influential people are culpable for this, you know, um, political, like internal political espionage, domestic political espionage. It's, it's now that not only is it is way bigger than we ever thought, but if all of those guys are involved, it's even bigger. Like it's, there's more. And I think that. That's the cresting wave here is because now literally almost every moment in the film, exactly as you said, like it is, you are on the edge of your seat, like the every person they're talking to, every story they get, every, everything, it is just a, it is an avalanche happening. And, uh, and that's what I love is because they start to become aware well, well before the, you know, infamous deep throat scene where he's like, your lives are in danger. And then there's that great interplay where they're, he's passing on messages on the typewriter while Bernstein's yeah, yeah. Listening to, you know, um, um, opera. Um, but it's, 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 the, I, I think they're starting to know the stakes and especially when they go and visit Hugh Sloan, um, there's the, that beautiful line, which I am going to get to in the, in the minute that's coming up, which is, you know, they're both walking down the street and she's like, you know, can, can you believe that, you know, there are people, um, you know, behind these dark suburban, you know, you know, behind these bright suburban streets that, you know, something nasty is going on and Woodward's like, yeah, I can believe it. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, That's that may as yeah, well just yeah. be the exegesis of the movie. Is that, like, three lines? And then walking down the street and going, there's, you know, something wicked is happening behind this, you know, lovely facade of what America thinks it is.
3: Well, and it's also, like, the, the interesting thing about, the, like, the arc of realization in the movie is that when it starts out, you know, like, and there's the, you know, third-rate burglary at the Watergate Hotel, you know, the, the, the famous race, you know, it's like, and then, Um, You know, both – or I think, like, Bernstein at the beginning of the movie is like, wouldn't it be fucked up if, like, Nixon was involved in this, man? That would be trippy, right? Like, if fucking Nixon was involved – you know, everybody else is like, shut up, you dumbass. That's not the way things work. And then, like, by halfway through the movie, he's like, even he didn't know, you know, because he's not walking around with his dick out saying, I told you so, because it's like, he didn't know. He was just saying, wouldn't it be cool – and then all of a sudden it manifests in real life. He had to, like, especially with the amount of coffee you was drinking, that shit had to fuck him up. You know, just being like, being like, oh, shit, man. Did I think this in a reality? Fuck, maybe I need to take a valium or something. You know, it's like, you know, it's like the thing where it's like you get high enough and all of a sudden you think your it's brain like, is, like, manifesting reality,
1: yeah. Is one of my cigarettes acid dipped? Because this is all too fucked up. This is all too, yeah. rib- how did we get here? Yeah, like, it's such a fantasy at the beginning. And then you're like, uh, you know, in that great William the the great William Goldman line, follow the money, it's just like, oh, actually, that's it. That's it. That's what it is. Like, it's yeah. all over to the top. It's going even further than we thought.
3: Like, that line became the mantra for understanding American life forever after because it's like, when there is a huge scandal like this with enormously powerful people involved, follow the money and you'll find the truth,
1: you know? And... I think, I think that's it. You know, it's funny that... Goldman set like discovered that line because even investigative journalists have had on the show, like you and I can talk about it from like how uh, it, it's, it's rippled through history. Um, and when there are controversies, yeah, yeah. but like even investigative journalists are like, yeah, that's a really great, that's a really great foundational, question to have in your head when you're like looking for right out it's like, literally. you're
3: like shit that's good advice actually that's, thanks bill it's actually, yeah, right? <laughs> actually,
1: it's actually kind of encapsulates what we're doing it's like you follow the money because it's an easy thing to follow because you've got a paper trail because you've got something nope. that you follow and you can you know if someone's bank account swells up and and you know even in something as trivial as like um in Australia, in Australia, we've got you – know, one of our most popular sports is rugby league. And uh, just like in the NFL, you have a salary cap. And there's been lots of salary cap, um, uh, you know, uh, salary cap sort of uh, – uh, let's just say what it is, fuckery basically for many years where like someone gets paid a million dollars on their contract and that's what it says. And, and then their sister – miraculously gets $30,000 from, you know, a, 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 a branch of that organization and their mum gets another $30,000 a year from this organization and they cut and, you know, and it's like big, uh, big, um, uh, sort of cheating and rorting the salary cap has been found out from like following, literally following the money. So it's just one of those funny things that like, it literally plays out in all forms of journalism of all topics, um, ever since this moment.
3: Right, and you know, it's like in, in another uh, great film, as Danny DeVito once said, everybody wants money, that's why they call it money, you know? <laughs> you know, and it's like, and, and that's, that's the other reason why follow.
4: the money gets you everywhere. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too, Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
3: First, like, you know, everybody's looking for it
2: somewhere.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got this scene. We've got these guys playing off. Again, another beautiful, beautifully composed Gordon Willis shot of the sort of like the blurred, not a diopter, a blurred foreground shot of the T-T and the table and this beautiful, I don't know, it looks like a bit of a, a halo of, um, a, little, a halo of like trees that are surrounding this house that feels like comfortable. No one can be seen. Um, and then the guys sort of again, blustering in in, in corduroy and short sleeves and ties, um, uh, for her, but it's just the beginning of, you know, the tragedy of this show is that we cut off or, 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 or crowbar you into, in between great scenes. And I feel like we get the very end moment of what is a terrific scene. And we get just the ramp up to what is another great scene of this movie, which is like them actually showing off their very deliberate sort of, uh, you know, interrogation techniques, um, that they've planned about who's going to say what and who's going to play what role and, and seeing these guys actually form their relationship. It's, I feel like in this moment, these guys are these guys, more than any other moment. Right. You know, like, I, I don't know what it is about it, Danny. I was, going to talk to you about it. And I was watching it in preparation. I was watching it last night. I was watching it this morning before we talked. And I'm like, I feel like this is the most Woodward Woodward is in the movie, almost and the most Bernstein where it's effortless. Like there's no, there's no show. There's no nine coffee energy. It's just like they're there as these characters talking to this woman with a, with their plan of how they want to exactly inf- extract information from her. And here it is. It's right in front of you. And I, but, but it's nonetheless, really compelling really phenomenally acted just really great work
3: oh yeah and you're absolutely right about this being a very unguarded and very revealing moment for who both of them are because one of the things that happens um a a lot over the course of the movie is that as dedicated as woodward is to the story he's also essentially like a people pleaser and a social climber who values status Yes. This is something that we've seen play out in real life since then. I mean, Bob Woodward, at this point in history, is essentially kind of like uh, like a prestige puppy dog for <laughs> you know, administrative power in D.C. Like, you know, every single time he writes a new one of these tell-all books, he gets access to literally everybody. Yes. And then he puts out the book, and there's nothing really all that consequential in it. Because I recently... Rewatched. I, I watched all the President's been like a couple weeks ago, which is why I didn't have to rewatch it again for this because it's still really fresh in my memory. One of the things that struck me watching it that time was that, and I think it was like you know Woodward announced that he was like writing a book about Trump, and 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 it was the thought just crossed my mind. It's like if Bob Woodward was still worth the shit as an investigative journalist, somebody would have assassinated him by now. Oh yeah, because. He has been riding on Watergate for 45 years, you know, I mean, and and like, you know, I'm I'm not saying that the guy hasn't done a goddamn thing since then. Like, he's had a career as a journalist and it's like, you know, they haven't like, you know, fired him for slacking off yet or anything. But it's like he hasn't done anything as earth shattering as this since then, which is kind of unfair because, I mean, Watergate is pretty big, you know, and it's like no matter who you are, it's going to be the biggest story of your career. Um, but it's like, uh, Woodward has become safe at yeah. this point, and, and it's, you can see the seeds of that in the movie, in Redford's performance, because Redford, like, he has the, you know, uh, Redford's, iter, uh, you know, iteration of Woodward, you know, has this very, like, uh, you know, like, WASP institutional... Um, you know, like, he'd be right at home at a garden party, like, you know, sipping gimlets with, like, you know, people in the social register and, like, playing croquet and, like, you know, those whole, like, very, you know, Great Gatsby kind of scenes, you know. It's like, he's right at home in that world, and that's one of the contrasts between Bernstein is that Bernstein is very just, like, I'm Jewish and I'm from the city, and I'm, like, I'm from the you know I'm from the street, I'm from baseline reality. And yeah. Woodward is, like, I'm, I'm, I'm Wasp around. country club aristocracy.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'm cycling around the city. I'm on the street. You're driving around. You're very comfortable with these people. You don't want to tread on, you don't want to offend anyone. Right. And, and Bernstein is the complete inverse of that, which is like a nice, it's a nice Yang, you know, to his Ying, which is like, no, I'm going to, if we have to tread on people's toes, we're going to do that. That's what's going to happen.
3: Yeah. And that's the interesting thing in the scene that we watched is that there is that slight inversion of that because, With because whether because he's tired or stressed out or what I think like if I remember correctly Woodward has been up for like a couple days straight like when this scene starts and like he's been subsisting entirely on you know coffee and fear and ambition and he gets into this scene and he's a lot more aggressive than he usually is and not like in an off-putting kind of way but in a very honest way like that the, the realist about Bob Woodward uh, uh, and I should specify about Redford's iteration of Woodward, although I think this is also true of the real Woodward is his ambition. That ambition is his defining trait. And he is just like, he has awareness that if he plays this right and he's, you know firm but not overbearing, he'll get the information that he wants out of this person. Yes. And so that's just how he plays it. He just shows up and he's, like, like calm, and he's making an effort to be calm because, like, his probably in his mind he's, like, you know, hallucinating shit out of the corners of his eyes because he's been up for two straight days, you know. <sighs> but he's holding it all together, and he's, like, because I know I can't be off-putting, but part of him is, like, ah, oh, I mean, I'm a good-looking blonde guy. If I just, like, you know, manage to sort of maintain, you know, this woman is like, oh, he's handsome, I'll tell him stuff, you know. Or whatever, you know, it's like, or he seems like a nice boy. Like, he seems like, <laughs> oh, he, yeah, he's an F. Scott Fitzgerald character. Of course I can trust him, you know. But, you know, so it's like, uh, it's like there isn't that, um, that performative, like, people-pleasing thing that he's doing when he's around, like, you know, his higher-ups at the Washington Post or when he's interviewing, like, you know, powerful men or whatever, it's like, I don't know. And it's it just, it seems, like you said, you pointed out very astutely that it is a very honest moment from him. And Bernstein is just sort of like, you know what? The natural order of things is that this guy is the aristocrat and he's the star and I'm the working man. So it's like, I'm just, instead of pushing back against that, it won't kill me to defer to him for like two seconds and just sort of calmly let him play this out. Because it's also, it's like the strategy that they discussed for how to play the scene, it's like Woodward is the one who is going to have to take the reins and sort of like take the lead in orchestrating the conversation that they want to have to get her to say the thing that they want. And,
1: and, and, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and the big one is Hoffman has done so good to repress his instincts with her to extract the story that it would be so weird for him to come in and be blustery Bernstein, you know, like in this moment. So, like right. when, when when they're talking about the strategy, it's like, well, you kind of have to. Like he's like, you kind of have to take the lead. I have to be the guy that sits there because I and and after spending six hours with one person to try and ex- extract all this information is like I clearly can't get any more out of her.
3: So right, you, and it would be overkill. Yeah, it's like because both of them being really smart guys is something that comes through a lot in the movie and in uh, very uh, very strongly in this scene. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that at, at this point, the, uh, you know, I don't know about you, Danny, but like on movies I like to rewatch, I love scenes where you then, it's just one of those things, it's hard to, it's hard to pick up on the first time that you view it, but every other scene that they then have for the rest of the movie, even though you don't get to see them do a strategy planning session, you know, in a way as we have in the previous scene, you now imagine that they do that for every scene, you know, you imagine right. that already done it so i love now revisiting like from this point on exactly in the movie every time that they talk to someone new i'm like i, I want to imagine how they plan that scene and if they yeah, did they
3: had a strategy session the night before yeah yeah yeah
1: and, on, and the thing about the narrative
3: efficiency of the movie is that it doesn't need to show you every single one of those scenes the way yeah. that like a modern movie would do that where it's like oh well i mean we can't assume anything we have to spoon feed the audience all the information you know but there's there it's like we yeah. did it once. All right. Let's just like, like, nah, let's, let's keep it moving. We Everyone did it. Wants, to see, everybody you, wants to see Nixon get impeached. They don't want this bullshit. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's every, like the audiences are in the seats because they want to see Nixon go down. You
1: know, like, <laughs> oh my God. I just love that guy. I want to see that guy when, when the movie ends with the teletype, he's like, what the hell is this movie? What the hell did I just watch for two hours? Oh my God. Oh, goodness.
3: it's so great, though, because that moment, man, at the Teletech one, because the, the next and last thing is like, Nixon's like, yeah, fuck this. I ain't going to resign. And it's like, two days later, Nixon resigns. And at that point, watching the movie, because the, like, pretty much, like, the entire movie has just been holding your breath because it's all so tense and so perfectly calibrated to be this, like, just on, like, to capture the intensity of living through those times. The same thing when I talk about this movie with, uh, you know, like with my mom who was around back then and like, you know, following the story fanatically, you know, uh, in the papers. And she was just like, yeah, no, the whole time, the way that movie feels is the way life felt for a couple of years while that story was in the papers, you know. And just like at the end of the movie, when the teletype says, you know, like President Nixon resigns, uh, you know, President Gerald Ford to take the oath of office, you're just like. And it's just like one big exhale. It's such a brilliant way to do it, too, because it's like, you know, and again, it's like another device taking the place of the one that you normally expect, because you normally expect, like, you know, a big action climax. And then the Daniel Mon is sort of like, you know, holding your breath, like the big action climax is, you know, Woodward and Bernstein sitting at their typewriters, you know, like file and copy. And then. It's the super loud teletype, you know, just, like, hammering in at the end. But the sound design, the loudness of the teletype, like, keeps you in it. Because you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 this shit is mad loud. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is still... And then it's like Nixon resigns, and you're like, holy fuck. (laughs) You know, because it's like the idea that the fucking president of the United States would, like, resign over being involved in some, like, you know, like people's minds were blown when that happened in real life. And it kind of broke the brains of a lot of American journalists after that because they were either expecting, okay, we're never going to have a scandal ever again of this remotely this magnitude, or every single time anything happens, we have to treat it like it's Watergate. And so it's like the push and pull between those two very flawed ways of approaching journalism have meant that a whole lot of insane shit has happened in the United States since then. And the media has done a really bad job of handling most of it. (laughs) You know, yes, like Ronald Reagan selling weapons to like right wing guerrillas in Central America, like was like the equivalent of something like I mean, it's a bigger crime than like breaking into an office, uh, you, you know. Um, but it was like, oh yeah, I mean, we can't flip out. I mean, this is no Watergate. And it's like, ah, no, this is actually like worse, you know? Yeah. And then and, and then Bill the Clinton p- got a blowjob. Oh man, this is worse than Watergate. And it's like, no, he got his dick sucked. Like, just us <laughs> like some perspective here. Yeah. Like,
1: is, is it guys? Is it is it worse? Yeah. Than, is it, you know is is it worse than doing that? And oh, it's it's it is a funny ebb and flow how that goes because I, I in the show a few times I've talked about the guy who got the I grab her by the pussy tape, must have gone like this is my Watergate. Like this, I am, oh, yeah. I'm going to be Woodstein, a solo Woodstein. This is mine. And then that just evaporated into nothing. And so I, I'm always, I'm consistently shocked about. Uh, just the way things are reported. It's not exclusive. It's not exclusive uh, to, to your to your country. It's absolutely mine. I just want to go on a brief aside, oh. talk about like ridiculousness. So one of the states in Australia is currently on a really strict COVID lockdown because they had really the worst outbreak in our entire country. So a lot of borders are closed and, and they've got like stage five lockdowns and curfews and things like that to curb it. And they were doing it for six weeks and they've gone about three weeks into it now. Um, I think it was six to eight weeks. And um, they're about halfway through and... You know the, their numbers are going down significantly. There's still some deaths, but you know the whatever actions that they're taking are causing, you know, some positive things for people's well-being. And one of our morning shows, which all morning shows, if you're a morning magazine show, you suck. Like you, you just you, it's you're oh, just yeah. garbage, right? And one of the morning shows was talking about how that southern state, Victoria, wasn't rolling out a Disney toy in supermarkets down there until after the lockdown is done. And we're complaining with the premier. Like, so, look, like, he's essentially like a governor going, Oh, look at this guy. He won't let yeah, actually yeah. tap Disney. And I just wrote to them on Twitter as you do. And I just went, great. Disney toy or kill grandma. You choose like fucking morons. Like people are just so like, th- that's not, that's not what to, that's not what is happening. That's not what's happening. Like, Look what's yeah. right. So it's either death or a Disney toy. Who gives a shit about the Disney toy? Like, let's think about all the lives that are being saved. Like, that day on one of their news bulletins, they're like, oh, and another 12 deaths from the coronavirus in Victoria overnight and 220 new cases. Anyway, Disney, why can't my kids get a toy in Victoria? Why can't they yeah. go to it. the It's just like, what? I don't understand how your brain still works or whether you've been lobotomized by morning TV, but. Like, I don't know. The The wild
3: thing is is that you're still better off than we are in terms of, like, (laughs) no matter how dumb shit in Australia gets. And it's like, I don't know, like, you know, a a number of Australian people, like, through Twitter. And it's like when they talk about, like, the way Australian politics are. And it's like, that's pretty dumb. And you do have some pretty racist, pretty right wing politicians. But, like, you guys are still better off than we are. (laughs) It's like, we have you beat in stupidity. (laughs) We have you outflanked on the right by several miles, you know, it's like, and, and, and well, and the thing is, is like, this is all part of the discussion that we're having relating to all the president's men, because all of this ultimately does kind of come back to failure, institutional failures of journalism to, you know, to keep the public properly informed about what's going on, what's dangerous, what your priorities are, you know, it's like, what's important, what isn't. Yes. Because it's um you know we're in an era where people are largely choosing which facts to believe whether they choose to exist in baseline reality with uh, you know objectively observable events and statistics that are related to actual things that are happening <laughs> or you can just turn to the fun channel where it's like nope all oh, that's bullshit trump's doing a great job and you're like, wait, 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 how are you? What are you basing this on? It's like, ah, what are you questioning me for? Ah, what are you, some kind of gay communist? And it's like,
1: well, yeah, but like that's not the point. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, yes, I am a gay communist, but that's that wasn't part of. What me. the fuck does that have to do with anything? Tell me the thing that's like.
3: <laughs> no, but it's it's just it's, and it's like you know, when when you see like you know polls between the two major political parties in in the states, and it's like. Like, you know, 90% of Democrats believe that, like, you know, COVID-19 is a serious problem. Yes. And then, like, 57% of Republicans believe that it's okay. And it's like, those, those aren't the only two slices of demographics in the country. I mean, there are people, God help us, who are farther to the right than the institutional Republican Party. And there are a whole lot of people who are completely left out of the, you know, all decision-making process in this country or to the left of the Democrats. Um, but that's a really fucked up divide. And it's like, and it has to do with, you know, how just, you know, the, the, the like the, the differing and disingenuous interpretations of the first amendment of our constitution you which know, guarantees free speech, I mean, obviously, yeah, and, and I, don't, I don't I don't wanna I don't want to assume that people know that and in you know in, in other countries. We just toss around our jargon. But it's like but like the disingenuous interpretations of like what free speech means, um it's meant that you know like corporations essentially have bought immunity from all consequences because money is speech somehow. Yes. And it's that a news station can effectively lie to people in the guise of saying it's like we're presenting a different perspective. And it's like, yeah you are presenting a different perspective. It's called shit that isn't real. You
1: know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's factually inaccurate. That's and, and and also, um, there's that duty of care. You know, there's, there's something that happens in this movie where it's like the, the care and the, and the pride to be telling the truth and to be talking, saying factually accurate statements and even, you know, orchestrating overlapping weird techniques to, you know, uh, to, to achieve the goal of making sure that whatever the person is saying to you is factually accurate so that you can then go take it to print. All of those things and then and then find sources to back that information up and all those sorts of things. It just seems like sometimes the, the, the kind of mag magazine sort of panel show, 24-hour news cycle, whether it's both, you know, right down the line of like just like backing whichever political party is in power or like this, you know, your strange like Fox News propaganda that just like provides – you know I love that that phrase you know alternative facts is just so dumb like it's like it's it's this it's it's an it's oxymoronic you know and underline the moron in the middle of that it's just like it doesn't make any sense that it's like oh well you know you, you if you look at it from this perspective with no facts and the facts perspective is the other side but that's the kind of balm of this movie is that they're so even though they're playing all these games to try and get the information, once they actually have it, they then have to source it, you know, and like Bradley mm-hmm. will go, okay, well cool. You've gotten that confession. Now go confirm it with four sources in some instances. And they're like, God damn it. But that at least promoted that. These are our sources. These are all the facts that are associated with it. This is why you need to know about it. And, and that tenacity to like take a story that no one cared about to be the most important story in the country is, is, is a sort of ethos that seems like completely Missing, And then I, I, I often wonder with Fox news is like, if the Republicans lose the, the election at the end of the year and they've become so corrupted by this whole reality TV bully president act, um, that is completely amoral and like, you know, stoking the fires of conspiracy theories and all this other weird shit, like how do they just, what's day two like when he's not the leader anymore of that party? Like, I just wonder, like, what are they going to do? Like, what are they going to do sitting around at a table together and go, all right, right, well, we've just hitched our wagon to this guy and it's now over. Like, are we even relevant anymore? Like, I don't I don't understand.
3: Well, I mean, in in practical terms, what they're going to do is just deny, continue to deny the reality of the situation. And yeah. what what's most likely to happen is that, you know, if current trends uh, hold, uh, you know, like Biden is going to win by you know an extraordinary amount in the popular vote. And he's probably going to eke out like, you know, like a narrow but definitive win in the Electoral College. Yes. But Trump is going to get up there when the returns come in and just be like, this is fake news. This is bullshit. Yes. And they're going to play that for as long as they can. Yes. They're just going to deny reality and just be and claim electoral fraud, which is something that the only cases in which it's been proven has been uh, like Republican governors denying uh, legally registered voters the right to vote. Yes. But they claim that there's this vast conspiracy to like illegally register like more you know like uh, people to you know like the Democratic Party and non Republican. Uh, affiliations uh, than there are you know it's like it's this vast conspiracy it's like you know expanding the right to vote is you know is inherently corrupt and they will you can't you know asking follow-up questions is just going to yield more bullshit because they don't really have anything to base this on there's no observable objective evidence to back up what they're saying. But they've noticed over the last four years that that doesn't really matter. They can just they can just yell bullshit. (laughs) And then like the media that's still holding on to whatever, like, you know, desiccated ideal that, you know, Bradley is trying to imbue in Woodward and Bernstein about like the more important the information is, the more sources you have to verify it with, because it's more important. It's more important that it be accurate, you know. Anybody who's like holding on to like the game of telephone version of that, where it's like, oh, facts should be real. Yeah, you know, it's like, uh, you know, they're going to have to like go and fact check the claim that, oh, the election is fraud. And it's like, oh, we, okay, well, we need to investigate voter fraud now. And it's like, no, you really don't. I mean, you have, (laughs) you know, like, it's, you know, but, I mean, I don't know how all this shakes out because, I mean, it's uncharted territory. There's no precedent for it in, you know, because when they, you know, like when they drew up the, the you know, the documents that, you know, founded that are the basis of law in this country, they never factored in the possibility of some guy who was such an asshole that he would just get in office and be like, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, and and, and they were just like, surely any man of rectitude and honor would have the the decency, to, And that's the thing that's sort of melancholy about all the president's men now is that Nixon and all those guys, like when they got caught, they were like, fuck. Yeah,
1: I did did
3: it. They they were just like, I I, I fucked up. Uh, I've disgraced myself. I'm resigned. You know, all this like admission of culpability and like admission of guilt. And, you know, an admission that penitence was a necessary thing is is the thing, actually, that probably dates this movie more (laughs) than like the hairstyles or needing to go to a phone booth or the cars or anything like that. It's the, the idea that Nixon would just be like, oh, okay, the jig is up, I'll resign. It's like Trump has had like 30 things that have been impeachable or, like, on this level. It's, like, one of the reasons why the grab him by the grab them by the pussy thing didn't take is that, like, he had accusations that he'd, like, raped a 16-year-old girl, like, going on at exactly the same time. There was, you know, all of the Russia shit, which is still a huge fucking mystery because it's, like, you know, it's at once more serious and not as serious as people are saying and everything because it's, like, the you know, the idea that it's, like, you know, Boris and Natasha cloak and dagger cold war shit is utter bullshit. But it's like they've poured massive amounts of money into Trump's, you know, in, in, invested in him as, as an entity. And, you know, it's like and there is like, you know, the, you know, quid pro quo going on in some of those dealings, whether or not they're the ones that actually, you know, it's just that he's saturated the scandal market to such a degree that scandal has become completely devalued. Yes, and it's gotten to the point where uh, alongside the you know kind of simultaneous crusade against truth so nothing is real and nothing means anything anymore and nothing is you know worthy of like you know introspection and penance so I don't know but uh, it's 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 One of the the things that's so great about watching all the president's men now is that it's like, yeah, this was a story that had a conclusion. Yes. And for once it it ended on the side of justice. And, you know, it's like and I really think that. You know, I mean, uh, back a few years ago, uh, I want to say like back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, I remember, I think it was David O. Russell. Was being an asshole expressed um, in in an interview about it was it was when right it was when Steven Soderbergh uh, like won the Oscar for Traffic yes and and he gave this uh, interview to the New York Times where he's talking about one of his favorite movies was all the President's Men um, and Russell who was not representing a particularly minority opinion among you know like cinephiles and movie fans at the time like went on this whole thing about just like all the president's men you're a fucking nerd you are such a fucking just like you are so uncool that movie is such a fucking dad movie you know it's like that movie is just it's safe it's like it's it's just like it's just a safe normal ass boring fucking movie you know just going off on this whole thing and it, that wasn't like a unique perspective people were like oh yeah soderbergh's lost his edge he's talking about all the president's men and I think the reason why that movie's reputation has appreciated over the years is because I mean, first of all, it is like formal perfection. And, you know, that's all side discussion about some people's appreciation of cinema, you know, is like the mistakes and the messiness and like, you know, big swings for the fences, whether or not they're successful or not. They yes. value that over formal perfection. But if formal perfection is something that I think needs to be acknowledged. And whether or not it's your highest value, it's something that does need to be valued because if it was so easy to be formally perfect, how come so few movies have ever achieved that? Yes. You know, and then extra texturally, because of the political landscape in America, it's like, fuck, that was the last time that the bad guys got caught.
2: Yeah,
1: or the last time that the bad guys had consequences because they've been caught. Yeah. But now they just... Now they've got a whole news network that just, like, backs them up on their lies. And you're like, there are recordings. There are facts. Here's documents. Here's so- sworn witness statements that this person did something wrong. And then everyone's like, No. Nah. <laughs> I, I, well, I, mean, I never knew that this was a defense.
3: No. Nah. Like, nope. Well, the, the sad thing is, is that really where it all kind of passed the point of no return is when uh, Ronald Reagan was running for the presidency in 1980. And he sabotaged the negotiations about the iranian hostage crisis that jimmy carter was trying to negotiate um and even sabotaging the negotiations reagan was able to look it's like look jimmy carter can't even handle this shit. i'm gonna bring our i'm gonna bring our americans back home and then he and then he just kicked the shit out of carter in the election and never got caught and then in his second term the iran contract thing which was like you know Go it, 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 it was just, it, you're just like uh, unfucking believable that there were no consequences Or that, you know, like the There was like, what do you mean there's no consequences? A couple people stepped down from their positions And it's like, yeah, and then they had better jobs Five years later, you know <laughs> Oliver North was like on Fox News Making millions of dollars, you know, like As a Fox News contributor And it's like, so The only reason why Fox News was possible Was because It had become clear that there were no consequences for, you know crimes. You know, yeah. like as yeah. long as you're a certain type of person with enough of the right kind of institutional power, there are no consequences for your actions anymore. And it's so it's such a shame because it's like Watergate showed, it's like you can do it, you know? Yeah. Anyway, I mean we could go on about like the state of modern politics and like right wing fuckery all fucking day, but like Everybody gets, everybody gets it, you know, it's, things are fucked up. I, however, don't subscribe to the notion that everything is permanently fucked just because they're fucked in the moment. Like, I think there's a way out, it's just that reality needs to evolve to the point where we can see the source of the light at the end of the tunnel, rather than inferring its existence by, like, you know you know the hubble telescope or whatever
1: you know it's like yeah yeah you have to feel like you can touch it and i think that you know in the context of like covid you know in oz we've seen what happens when you can curb you know curb it in our country down to almost nothing and then sometimes there's an outbreak and then you've got to deal with that and you've got to deal with it seriously for the protection of the people um and there's definitely criticisms to be leveled at the government or journalism and covering it but it's like you can see like if the other states have got such a low cases it's like oh there's the light at the tunnel like we can go outside again and we can interact with each other again and those things and that's just like one element but man i've i've had uh outside of us postulating about the state of the world i've had just an absolute blast talking this movie with you the ultimate dad movie um uh, (laughs) uh, well i'm
3: old enough that that's not a bad thing anymore you know it's like I'm over 40 years old. It's like a dad movie. Hell yeah. Give it to me. You know, look,
1: what I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a dad of two and I'm like, yeah, shit. Yeah. It's a dad movie. I'm in like, yeah. I, like, I like I'm, I'm all in. So, um, but look, Danny Bose, mate. Thank you so much. Um, for chatting thank to you me for
3: having me, man. It's so nice to just like, feel like like how happy you're having me on the back am like oh man oh shit War- it warms the heart you
1: know i us say that yeah well well you're you're such a talent and so fun and uh and the imaginary characters that you've brought to the show today have given me such unbridled joy um and i just love it so i uh, um you're you're a great mind danny where can people find you the most um is twitter still the best place to find you to leap off to all the other stuff that you're up to
3: yeah, until lockdown is over. I mean, even though we're not actually locked down, I'm self-imposing lockdown. But uh, until then, Twitter. I'm at ByBos, b y b o w e s, and uh, any further updates about any future ventures will be, be. That's the that's the source. So.
1: Unreal. I love having you on the show. I love uh, having you as a source. Of much uh, laughter and joy on Twitter, and uh, and uh, it's been a real treat. So thanks again.
3: Ah, thank you, man.
1: Danny Bowes, oh my goodness, is he not just the funnest? If you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at by Bose, Bowes B O W E S. You can find links to his stuff in the description of the show. Absolute treat, and uh, man. I, I I had a fun time editing this one, listening back to Danny's impressions, especially the uh, his inferred bookkeeper in a monologue is, is a true highlight. Danny, you're a legend. Thanks for being on the show. Guys, thank you for listening at ATPM Pod if you want to follow the show on Twitter, oneheatminute.com to see all of our guests and every show that we've done and about the shows. If you want to follow me, I'm one Blake Minute on the socials on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to reach out, it's mail at oneheatminute.com. And please, if you like the show, no need to donate monetarily. Rate, review this bad boy. Go onto iTunes, go onto your other apps, review us. Um, even just a couple of sentences about what the show means to you would be a huge help um, for sharing the show around to new people. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on another episode very soon.